It is really nice to see so many of you near the front, and I'm especially glad to be with you this morning because I've seen how much custard they're using today in kids' church. It's a lot, a lot of custard, so I'm glad I'm avoiding that. Um, so today we are doing the second part of our little series based on this book by Tom Wright called Surprised by Hope. And uh, last week Nigel kicked us off really by looking at the whole area of um, hope for the world. And so today we're going to kind of continue a little bit on that, we're going to unpack some stuff. My job today really is, um, because there's an awful lot of content in this series as I've been preparing for today, an awful lot of content, I've realised my job today is just to unpack bits of what that is and then leave it on the table for Nigel to sort out in subsequent weeks. <laughs> so um, we're going to be even on that score I think today. So um, Nigel last week talked to us about what ultimate hope do we have and also what hope do we have for our present circumstances. He kind of talked a little around the, the ideas of what, the hope for the future and the hope for our present circumstances. And today we're going to do that as well as looking first of all back into the past to see what the Bible says and what the text says about the hope of the resurrection in particular. And uh, today I have to start off by being honest with you and saying that I wanted to define what hope was. And it's a struggle. I, I, I really don't understand what hope is sometimes. It's a difficult word to pin down. It could be, and hopefully this is working, yay, that's what we're talking about. It could be a feeling. It could be something that you would hope would happen. It could be a state of mind. But none of that really satisfied me. I thought there must be something more to it than that. It could be something other than that, other than just those simple things. Is it, is, is it something that I wish would happen? for the positive, for the future, or is it something I want to happen now to my present circumstances? There's lots of different ways we can think about hope. I can be hopeful that when it comes to my birthday, I get the presents I want. That's hopefulness. I can be hopeful for those presents that I really would like. And sometimes if I don't get what I want, I'm disappointed. The other side of that coin is I can hope that Arsenal are going to win the league this year. And you could say that's hopelessness. It's the other way around. So I did what any good Christian would do in my, in my kind of quest to figure out what the definition of hope was. I prayed and then I opened my computer and I went to Google. <laughs> and uh, this is what Google came up with. I hope you can see this. Um, I went to a thesaurus and looked up synonyms of hope. And effectively, towards the left of the screen are, are words which are very strongly linked with hope. And as you go towards the right, they get less strongly linked with hope. So things like achievement, ambition, anticipation, aspiration, belief are all very strong synonyms for what hope is. And then over at the other end of the scale, you've got, interestingly, thing with feathers. And if anyone can explain that to me afterwards, that would be great. We've also got things like the promised land, pipe dreams, light at the end of the tunnel. So a whole series of different ranges of things that are kind of related to hope. And then more interestingly, I decided I was going to look at the opposite of hope, the antonyms, disbelief, dislike, distrust. But the three that really jumped out at me were this next column along, doubt, fear, and hate. And as I thought about this more and more, I realized that hope is an absence of doubt. It's an absence of fear, and it's an absence of hate, an absence of of things like worry. And when we come to consider what Christian hope is, it's even more concrete than that. So Christian hope has something that normal hope doesn't. So normal hope is hopeful. It's hard to explain what hope is without using it in, in its own kind of form. Hope is hopeful, but Christian hope is certain. There's a definite certainness and assuredness to Christian hope. 
It's not something that's a possibility or a probability. It's an actual dead cert, surefire thing which is going to come to pass. And it's important to keep that in mind today as we think about this, as we think about the resurrection particularly. Now when it comes to defining the resurrection, we have to start by going back in time to see what the people of the first century believed. And uh, this book's written by Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, and he tells us that today there's something of a confusion over what we actually mean by resurrection. We've taken it to mean going to heaven when you die. But actually, he says the original meaning was that it was something that happened after a period of resting in death. This is what he says. Within this world, it's the first century, the word resurrection in its Greek, Latin or other equivalents was never used to mean life after death. Resurrection was used to mean new bodily life after whatever sort of life after death there may be. When the ancients spoke of resurrection, whether to deny it as the pagans did or to affirm it as some Jews did, they were referring to a two-step narrative in which resurrection, meaning new bodily life, would be preceded by an interim period of bodily death. Resurrection then wasn't a dramatic or vivid way of talking about the state people went into immediately after death. It denoted something that might happen sometime after that. This meaning is constant throughout the ancient world until the post-Christian coinages of second century Gnosticism. Most of the ancients believed in life after death. But outside Judaism and Christianity, they did not believe in resurrection. And Wright goes on to explain that, that in the first century people, they fell into two different categories. Two different areas, if you like. First of all, pagans like the Greeks and the Romans, they believed that when you died, there was a whole variety of things that may have happened to you. So they each had their own kind of individual beliefs. Some of the Roman rulers believed that they would become gods themselves when they passed on. Others believed that when they died, they died and that was it. Nothing else existed. There was no further existence. There was nothing else happened. That was it. You were dead. You were gone. You were forgotten. Some of them believed that your physical body may have died, but that your soul continued like a spirit that kind of just went into the spiritual realms and stayed there. But your physical body would pass on. And some even believed that their, their, their physical soul, sorry, their spiritual soul would enter a new body, almost like reincarnation. So they had basically a whole plethora of different options and things that they thought might happen. There wasn't much agreement. There was a lot of different opinions and, and possibilities available to them. And when we look at first century Jews, they actually believed most of these same things. They had a a very similar viewpoint, except they had one key difference, that some Jews believed in something called a resurrection, small r, a physical resurrection of the body. Pharisees of the first century believed this. They believed that when when the, the body died, that the soul would be reborn eventually at a time of God's choosing, when all of God's people would be raised back up to life again. However, the other group that is often mentioned along with the Pharisees called the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Did you get it? No? Okay. I'll move on. Early Christians, however, they agreed on just one option, and that was resurrection. They didn't think that there were other options available. There was just resurrection. There was just a period of resting in death, and then a bodily resurrection at a time of Jesus coming again. Now, in the past, we've often argued about what that's going to look like and what that's going to, uh, how the order of things are going to happen in. But actually, the important thing to note is that they strongly believed, to the exclusion of all other possibilities, that the only option was in resurrection. And the reason why they believed in that resurrection with the small r is because of the resurrection with the big r. So let's spend some time just looking at that. I'm going to read from Matthew 27. Matthew 27. 
into 28. Most of the words should be on the screen. There might be a slight discrepancy between my Bible and what's up there. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said that after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So when they went and made the tomb secure, they put a seal on the stone and they posted a guard. Now after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers... See to them that they go to Galilee and that I will meet them there. When the women were on their way, apologies. When the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You're to say his disciples came during the night, took him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. That's Matthew's account of the resurrection. Of course, you can find similar but even slightly different accounts in the other Gospels and in the letters of Peter and Paul as well. And today, what I want to look at are three things. I want to look at the... We can move that on for me, Matt. That's all right. It's working now. I want to look at the evidence of the resurrection, looking back into the past and seeing what evidence we have for the resurrection. And then I want to look at the meaning of the resurrection and what implications that has for us today and in the future. And finally, we're going to look at what is the hope of the resurrection. So, as I said, something significant, something different was happening for Christians in the first century to exclude all other options and go with simply one option of resurrection for what happened to life after death. Something significant was causing them to focus on just this one option. But how do we know what really happened? What proof do we actually have? And to answer that question, we need to delve into an area of 
a study that we call at Bible College textual literary criticism. It's thrilling stuff. Absolutely thrilling stuff. Textual literary criticism. It's effectively looking at all the different texts that you have and deciding how do they agree, how do they disagree, and what does this actually mean? And you have to explore these as pieces of evidence for an historical event. And you examine the evidence. And the first piece of evidence we have for the resurrection is the existence of the church from the first century up to this moment in time. And the second piece of evidence we have is the texts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters of Paul, and the letters of Peter, and the other New Testament letters as well. And we can actually, according to literary criticism, count these as primary source material. They qualify as primary source material to historian. In fact, the sheer number of different copies that we have of text, look like the one on the right, from so many different sources, from lots of different times. We have the Qumran uh, cache of Dead Sea Scrolls that have shown that they agree with the, the documents as they've been handed down to us, more or less, as we find them in our Bibles over the years. And all the different changes that have been made by scribes, and by, by um, different scholars as they've looked at the text and tried to decipher what it means, we can actually say with some degree of certainty that the sheer number of copies of Gospels and letters that exist today, plus a content study of where they agree and where they disagree, that we actually have more evidence that Jesus lived, that he was killed by the Romans at the behest of the Jewish leaders, that he was put in a tomb, and that he rised again on the third day. We have more evidence for all of that than we have that Julius Caesar ever existed. And very few historians will actually try and argue the fact that Julius Caesar didn't exist. And when people come to question the resurrection, there are several major uh, arguments that they want to use to explore the different possibilities of what may have happened. Matt, would you mind just moving us on to the next slide, please? Or Pete? There we go. Great. Fantastic. Um, So there there are four or five different versions of what might happen. I'm just going to... um, open these up as I say we're not going to look at them in detail we haven't got the time to do that this morning however one option is obviously that Jesus died that he rose again and that Christianity is a result of that that is one option on the table in front of us today another option is that Jesus didn't die but instead the apostles were deceived that they they didn't actually see the real physical Jesus they saw hallucinations or visions or images that they thought might have been Jesus so that they were deceived they didn't actually see the risen Jesus. Another option is that they thought they'd seen the risen Jesus or that they might have seen the risen Jesus, but actually they they weren't too sure, they weren't certain, or they didn't know that Jesus was alive at all. So what they did was they created a myth, like a legend, like a Robin Hood type story of this good person who did these good things and they spread these stories. And that's one possibility. Another possibility is that the disciples knew that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead at all, yet they chose to lie about it and deceive people. So we've got hallucination, we've got myth, and we've got conspiracy, all resulting from the fact that Jesus possibly didn't rise at all. The other option is that Jesus never died in the first place, that when he was on the cross, he effectively fainted. This is called the swoon theory, where he might have fainted and then was later put in the tomb and resuscitated. And of course, the obvious flaw in that theory is how did he get out of the tomb with grave clothes on? Um, He had a spear in his side. There are lots of different reasons why none of these things might have worked. So... Peter Kreeft is a Catholic historian, and this is what he says. He says, theories two and four, hallucination and conspiracy, constitute a dilemma. If Jesus didn't rise, then the apostles, who taught that he did, were either deceived, if they thought he did, or deceivers, if they knew he didn't. 
The modernists could not escape this dilemma, and so they came up with a middle character, category, a myth. And this is the most alternative popular theory, theory today. So either number one, the resurrection really happened, number two, the apostles were deceived by a hallucination, or number three, the apostles created a myth, not meaning it literally. Or number four, the apostles were deceivers who conspired to foist on the world the most famous and successful lie in history. Or number five, Jesus only swooned and was resuscitated, not resurrected. All five theories are logically possible and therefore must be fairly investigated, even number one. They are also the only possibilities. Unless we include really far-right ideas that responsible historians have never taken seriously, such as that Jesus was really a Martian who came in a flying saucer, or that he never even existed, that the whole story was the world's greatest fantasy novel written by some simple fishermen, and that he was a literary character whom everyone mistook as a real person, including all Christians and their enemies. Until some scholar many centuries later got the real scoop. He goes on to say, if we refute, uh, refute all other theories, numbers two to five, we will have proved the truth of the resurrection. The form of the argument here is similar to that of most of the arguments for the existence of God. Neither God nor the resurrection are directly observable, but from data that is directly observable, we can argue that the only possible adequate explanation of this data is the Christian one. To explore each of these different theories would take quite a lot of time. It would be an almost entire sermon on its own. And so what I would like to point you towards is lots of other material out there that looks at this in quite a lot of detail. Uh, chief among which uh, is the, the work of Frank Morrison. It's a really interesting story. Frank Morrison was a, a skeptic, someone who didn't believe in Jesus, didn't believe in the resurrection. He set out in the 1930s to try and write a book that disproved the resurrection and proved it was all a made-up hoax. And as he consulted the evidence and looked at it in detail, he realized that actually it was more convincing than he'd originally thought. And so out of looking at this and wanting to write a book about it, he ended up becoming a Christian himself and writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? It was written in 1930 and it's been reprinted every year since and is still circulated today. If you want more modern versions, N.T. Wright has his own version and uh, Josh McDowell, who, who says this, also has his own uh, stuff freely available on the internet. And Josh McDowell writes, After more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men. Or, it is the most fantastic fact of history. Paul Little asks, Are these men who help transform the moral structure of society consummate liars or deluded madmen? The alternatives are harder to believe than the fact of the resurrection, and there is absolutely no evidence to support them. So if we go back and we look at the, the, the resurrection, the evidence we have for it, there's an overwhelming amount of stuff that backs up that what the Gospels say happened actually happened. There are lots of other theories, and you can take the time to explore those uh, in, your own, in your own time, in your own studies. There's lots of different material out there, like I say. But what I want to continue on with is looking at I'll just skip over that. What is the meaning of the resurrection? C.S. Lewis, who was writing about the importance of Christ's post-resurrection appearances, he says this. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say that they've seen the resurrection. If they had died without making anyone else believe this gospel, then no gospels would ever have been written. The resurrection is key and central to what our gospel is. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, if the resurrection never happened, then what we're doing here today is complete and utter lunacy. Why would we do this? Why would we be here? So it'd be really great if we could spend some time just looking at the absolute magnitude of the event of the resurrection and what it means for us today. And I've come up with seven different possibilities. I think that's seven. That might be eight. Could possibly be eight. So what does the resurrection mean? Well, first of all, it means that Christ was actually who he said he was. The resurrection confirms thus that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was God. The very fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross doesn't in itself prove that he was God. Jesus proved that he was God by fulfilling the prophecies of his death by returning from the grave. The Bible says in Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, By being raised from the dead, Christ was proved to be the mighty Son of God, with the holy nature of God himself. So number one, the resurrection proves that Jesus was God incarnate, come to earth. Number two, the resurrection proved that Christ had the power to forgive sin. The Bible asserts that if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins, just like we've read, written, uh, read there. But rising from the dead, by doing that, Jesus proved that he has authority and the power to break the bonds of sin and to give forgiveness and eternal life to all who accept him. So number two, Jesus has proven through his resurrection that he can forgive sins. The work of the cross was one of penal substitution, was one of taking the place of others and once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. Number three, the resurrection revealed that Christ has power over death. The Bible records that Christ rose from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Romans 6 verse 9. The resurrection secured our victory over death as well and lifted us up from the grave into glory along with Christ, where we sit with him in the heavenly realms, according to what Paul wrote in Ephesians. So number three, the resurrection has revealed that Christ has power over death. And number four, the resurrection defeated God's enemy. From the moment of his original rebellion to the day of the cross, the devil has fought against the, the kingdom of God. Satan must have thought that when Jesus died on the cross, that he dealt the final and decisive blow in this age-old war. But this was the devil's most serious miscalculation. The cross instead was heaven's triumph. And when Jesus Christ arose, the power of sin and death was forever shattered. The enemy is defeated the resurrection also means that the Holy Spirit will be poured out into the hearts of all those who believe. After Christ had risen and ascended, he was able to send the Holy Spirit to continue the work that he'd begun on earth through his people. He dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. And this also means that Christ will help us by strengthening us through his Spirit, convicting us and guiding us through life. So Wimber says we get to do the stuff because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into us. Acts 2 says, Before, sorry, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Next, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that we will be raised like him. We've touched already on, on being resurrected in bodily form. And Christ is described as the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, meaning that his resurrection is a precursor to the resurrection of all who believe. 
1 Corinthians 15 explains for us, a man came by death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This means that we as Christians will all enjoy the resurrected life just like Christ has and does. We will have glorified bodies raised in power just like in Corinthians 15. We may suffer in this life with many pains and illnesses. We, we have sickness amongst us. I've had man flu all week. It's been horrible. But in the life to come, we will not suffer, but we will enjoy perfect bodies like those that we've always longed for. And finally, the resurrection gives Christians living hope. Being forgiven of our sins and justified before God gives us tremendous hope. We are changed from being a slave to fear to becoming a forgiven child of God. And we have an eternal inheritance in heaven that can never be taken away. And what can be better news than that? The Bible says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. So what is this hope for the resurrection that we've been talking about? If it wasn't for the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus was the end of all hope for the disciples. No one at the time dreamed of saying, he'll be back in a few days. That thought never even entered their head. They never thought, it's okay, he's going to be with God now. They were in complete despair almost denial. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. They'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But yet he was put to death. The rulers of the day crucified him. They killed him. Jesus taught them to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it had in heaven, but yet it hadn't. As far as they were concerned, the day that Jesus died was the end of all hope. He was dead and their hope had gone with him. The crucifixion meant that the kingdom couldn't come. The crucifixion meant that he really wasn't the expected Messiah they thought he might be. The crucifixion meant that every single disciple had backed the wrong horse. Their game was over, their hope was dead, it was never going to happen. But the resurrection changed all that. The resurrection gave them hope. The resurrection meant that it wasn't defeat, but an overwhelming victory. The resurrection means that we can be free from sin. The resurrection meant that God's kingdom was breaking through into the here and now, both then and today. So I'm just going to come in land with this question. What are you afraid of? Thinking of those antonyms that we came back to at the start, those opposites of hope. What are you afraid of? What's worrying you? What are you struggling with right now? Because the resurrection means that hopelessness can be replaced with hopefulness. That worry can be replaced with optimism. That fear can be replaced with boldness and uncertainty with expectant promise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that your, your death on the cross wasn't the end, but was the beginning. It was the beginning of a new life that we can lead in you, Lord. We thank you that your kingdom is here. The, the kingdom of God can break through into today. We praise you for the great work that you did on the cross, Lord, but we also thank you that you came back. We thank you that you came back to 
to prove that it wasn't the end. You came back to prove that hope was real. You came back to prove that you had defeated death and that Satan no longer had any hold or dominion over this world. Lord, help us today to live out this truth in our everyday, ordinary lives. Help us today, Lord, to live out the truth that you are alive and that you live in us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to live with the confidence and the hope and the boldness that what you have promised will come to pass. And that one day in the future, Lord, we will see you face to face. That we will come to meet with you. That you will look upon us as your children. And that we will come into that inheritance that you've given us. That we will be risen again, Lord, in our bodily form. Whatever that might look like or however that might feel, we cannot really comprehend. But Lord, you have said that it will happen. And we give you praise and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.